Your financial choices may discuss various financial-related topics and thus would like to offer the following disclosures. Lori Siebert is employed by Valley National Group, the Valley National Financial Advisors Group of Companies. Investments are offered through Valley National Investments Incorporated, member FINRA. We inform you that any federal tax, state tax, financial advice, or information contained in this communication is not intended to be personalized or specific in nature or to be relied upon for your personal situation in any circumstance. The advice and information are not intended and cannot be used as a tax opinion letter nor used for the purpose of avoiding tax-related penalties. For personalized advice specific to your own situation, we recommend that you consult your CPA, CFP, or attorney. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the show. This is your host, Lori Siebert. I am a CPA, CFP professional, and AEP, that's an accredited estate planner, on the web at yourfinancialchoices.com, where you can also submit questions. You can listen online each and every week at wdiy.org, listen to podcasts under public affairs programs, stream on many streaming services, and or check out the WDIY listening app. Today is February 21st, 2024. The markets were mixed today with the Dow closing up at 38,612, the NASDAQ down at 15,580, and the S&P up at 4,981. Tonight, we'll take listeners' tax questions. So we'll all sit here in silence until I get some. <laughs> no. So listeners' tax questions, you could do that by uh, calling in at 610-758-8810. And until then, I will review some questions that I've received from clients, which could also, you know, benefit all of you from, from hearing typical questions that I might be getting. We are live tonight. You can um, call in with your questions. Cindy and Bob are in the studio. And... They will answer your calls, take your information. We do ask you to mute your radio so you can hear me without the delay and we can talk without confusion. We discuss general financial planning topics and not specific investments. And while I typically have a topic each week, you can still ask questions off topic and I will do my best to answer them. The number again is 610-758-8810 and you can talk live on air with us or if you're not comfortable talking live, just give your question to Cindy. And she'll write it down and Bob will bring it in. So if, again, you could also submit questions through yourfinancialchoices.com. And that's available anytime. Um, so tonight, listeners, tax questions. It is February 21st. It is going very, very fast, tax season already. Um, I can't believe we're already like practically a month into <clears throat> filing. And the deadline this year is April 15th. Over the past several years, it's been crazy. We've had all of these kind of extended dates, like April 17th, April 18th. It is April 15th this year, so we will be, um, you know, filing timely, I believe. And don't wait to get your returns done, because if you work on it now, you might discover that there was something missing. It may take you a while to, you know, retrieve whatever document it might be. I've talked about this over the last couple of weeks. Last year, last week, I wasn't here, but the week before, we've been talking about some of these topics of getting ready for your tax preparation, using your prior year return as a guide in um, locating those documents. Very important. Um, make sure that you you know, have what you had last year, or you understand why you don't have it this year, perhaps you closed a bank account, things like that. So be aware of that. Um, so as far as 
questions, again, listeners' questions, that's the topic tonight, 610-758-8810. If you're not comfortable talking live on air, just give your question to Cindy and, and they'll bring it in to me in the studio. So some questions that I've received recently, uh, I had someone who started a business in 2023. They were employed, and then when their position was um, eliminated, they decided to, you know, follow their dream and start their own business and really just jumped right into it. Um, had a lot of expenses initially and didn't necessarily... Um, you know, have income related to that. So the question was, can my 2023 business purchases be tax deductible? Or will it not matter since I've had zero income from my new business in 2023? So this person hit the ground running was making lots of connections, you know, really working it. Um, but the revenue, you know, people, it takes a while for the revenue to come in. So this was at the end of 2023. There are of course, certain business expenses that one may incur that, that may have to be capitalized. There's um, something like called startup cost. But nowadays, and I'm going off the top of my head here, for example, we used to capitalize them, but now I think the IRS allows, let's say, $5,000 kind of, you know, that we can expense. Um, his expenses were more uh, travel equipment, you know, video equipment, things like that. Uh, so his question was, can they still be deductible. And I said, yes, because he started the business. He's, um, you know, has a name for the business, opened up a separate bank account, has been tracking everything, very diligent about um, tracking his expenses, etc. And as it happens in 2023, he actually was employed for part of the year. So he, he did have, you know, a reasonable amount of income in 2023. It was only at the end of the year when he wasn't working that he then started his business and incurred some of these deductible expenses, uh, very legitimate business expenses. And yes, he can deduct them. Uh, what I explained to him is that he is a you know cash basis taxpayer. And so cash basis taxpayers recognize income when in the year they receive it, and they recognize the expenses in the year incurred or paid. So um, he actually will probably end up with a loss for 2023. We can take the loss on his tax return, and it would end up offset being offset with some of that his wages, you know, he can use a loss against that income for federal purposes. For state purposes, it depends on what state you live in. In Pennsylvania, we can't offset one class of income against another class of income, but for federal purposes, we would be able to use the loss. If there was a circumstance where he had no income and still had this business loss, then that could carry forward. And, you know, you don't lose the, the, the deductions in that situation, but he should be able to offset it. Um, if someone is starting a business, you do have to be careful because the IRS does expect that you are going into business to make a profit and you should have a profit motive. You don't go into business to have a loss just so you can offset some expenses for your hobby against maybe a spouse's income. Um, so you have to be careful. It has to be a legitimate business in, um, in the goal of making money. Uh, 
for a profit. Now, it doesn't mean, and usually they look at a three-year kind of window for that, the IRS, to see if it looks like you're making a profit. And there are certainly certain businesses that may look more like hobbies than you know, going into it for for profit, it it depends. So it's how are you presenting yourself? How are you putting yourself out there? Are you working it? Are do you have a website? Do you have business cards? Are you, um, you know, promoting yourself and making the effort to, um, you know, make a profit? So, yes, he can take the deductions in this story. In this case, he would be able to use those deductions. He also asked what was the best practice for the format of submitting his business expenses to the IRS. Now, this is the first time he's gone into business for himself. And I explained to him that in the current circumstances, he's a sole proprietor. He's filing what we call a Schedule C with his tax return, with his normal tax return. And on that Schedule C, you report your income and you report your expenses. And that's how that gets submitted to the IRS. The IRS doesn't say, send me all your receipts. Don't send me a copy of your receipts. They don't need any of that. They would only need that if they were to audit you. Um, we are signing returns under penalties of perjury. And it's, uh, you know, kind of an honor system, basically, with the IRS, because, you know, they expect that you're, you, you wouldn't file a fraudulent return, you know, when you're signing under penalties of perjury. So, um, you you summarize your expenses on that Schedule C. Um, typically, if you're working with an accountant, they might want more details behind those expenses. You can't just say, hey, I had $10,000 of repairs when maybe it was a $10,000 roof you put on your house that could be accounted for differently. So you you your accountant or if you're self-preparing, you do have to understand there could be some differences in how you report expenses, whether they're deductions, whether they're capital uh, improvements, whether they're startup costs beyond, you know, what the IRS allows as a, you know, an initial uh, deduction. So I'll talk more about that when we come back. But in the meantime, if you have questions, the phone number is 610-758-8810. We'll be back in a moment. WDIY thanks its members and Valley National Financial Advisors, offering a broad spectrum of financial services for more than 25 years, including fee-based asset management. It all starts with personal goals and an understanding of risk tolerance, investment objectives, and the markets. On the web at valleynationalgroup.com or 610-868-9000. Spread the word about your business or organization to a well-informed audience. Become an underwriter with WDIY. Our lineup of NPR news and locally produced programs reaches thousands of engaged listeners in the Lehigh Valley and beyond. Underwriting on WDIY is an affordable and effective way to provide information about your product and services to people who care. To learn more about underwriting opportunities, 610-694-8100 or WDIY.org. Welcome back to the show. This is your host, Lori Siebert. You're listening to Your Financial Choices right here on WDIY. 88.1 88.1 phone number this evening for questions 610-758-8810 you can talk live on air with us or if you're not comfortable talking live give your question to Cindy and they'll write it down and bring it in to me we are taking listeners tax questions tonight um I was explaining I do have uh, clients who are asking questions as well, so I thought I'd share some of those. In particular, this one uh, was very thought out. I thought it was really um, great of this person to kind of be engaged with, you know, how he's reporting things. I always talk about being proactive. Of course, I had to remind him that I sent him an email in November about all of this. Um, But one of his other questions was, how does he maximize, like, his deductions? Like, could he take a home? 
office. So I did explain to him there are two methods to take a deduction for a home office. Number one, you do really have to make sure that you're using the space in your home exclusively for that business. Um, it used to be I felt very strict with the IRS where it was like you couldn't even have like a bed in the room. But I think they kind of backed off from that and said, even um, so let's say you have a 10 by 10 room and half of it is, you know, for sleeping and half of it's your office. I think now they say if that half is exclusive for business, that area is kind of marked off for your business. You you factor that in. You can't take the whole room if it's used for partly personal reasons. So exclusive use is very important. And there's two methods. You can do actual um, expenses and or a simplified method. The actual expense, uh, actual method would be when you, let's say in that example, you use a 10 by 10 office exclusively for business. It's 100 square feet and your house is, uh, you know, a thousand square feet, then 10% of your home, that's a very tiny place, but um, uh, it could happen in an apartment, something like that. Um, 10% of your home expenses would be uh, allocated to the home office deduction. So you would say, uh, there's a form 8829 that you would complete, and that form would include, if you're a homeowner, it would include your real estate taxes, mortgage interest, utilities, um, homeowner's insurance, and then you would apply that percentage of exclusive office use over the total use to come up with the deduction. Then there's also depreciation. So if the value of the home is $100,000 and it's 10%, then you'd be able to depreciate over 39 uh, years because that's the deduction for non-residential, um, a 39-year depreciation on that 10% um, of the 100000 is $10,000 times, uh, you know, divided by 39 it's not a really big deduction, but then that gets tracked, you know, ongoing. You say, oh my gosh, that's overwhelming. I don't, it's too much to think about. Or maybe you have an apartment. So in that circumstance, um, the apartment would be your rent. And if you're paying utilities, same concept, a percent, but there wouldn't be any depreciation on your uh, apartment. The simplified method says, oh, too much to deal with. I don't want to keep track of any of those actual expenses. Um, the simplified method, and this is from the IRS, how is the amount of deductible expenses determined under the simplified method? You determine the amount of deductible expenses by multiplying the allowable square footage by the prescribed rate. The allowable square footage is the smaller of the portion of a home used in a qualified business use of the home or 300 square feet. So if your um, exclusive use is only 100 square feet, then that's the square footage you use, but it can't be more than 300 square feet. The prescribed rate is $5. So in this story, if someone uses 300 square feet times $5, that's a $1,500 home office deduction. That's the simplified method. It's a deduction. You don't do depreciation. You don't have to track all those expenses fairly simple. Um, Pennsylvania has not recognized the simplified method. So that's, you know, one of the downsides, you have to look to see what your state allows or not. Um, 
there's certain exemptions. If you uh, have a daycare, then there's an exception to that limitation, I believe, but I don't have any daycare, so I'm not, I don't know that off the top of my head. Um, but that could make it a lot easier for some people just to use the simplified method. Then there's no depreciation recapture on an eventual sale or anything like that. All right. Now, one of the follow-up questions to that, which is also a frequent question we hear from um, people, particularly those who are self-employed and have started a business and now they're making a profit. The question is, can I set up a retirement account? And people who are self-employed and maybe don't even have employees, um, a great option for them to defer more income would be a solo 401k. So that is something that one could explore. And what happened in the past is you would have to have had that solo 401k set up before year end for your tax year. But the IRS um, with, I think, Secure Act 2.0 has provided more leverage in that. And I believe starting in 2024, we can now um, set up a solo 401k even for 2023 income at this point. Uh, before we might have had to get a SEP IRA or, you know, some other type of retirement account established. So there's a, uh, gives us a little bit more wiggle room. The solo 401k, what's nice about that when you're self-employed is you can always put in the employee portion, which in 2023, you can defer $22,500. Plus, if you're over 50, you can do another $7,500. So for 2023, you could defer up to $30,000 of your income. Now that doesn't relieve you from self-employment tax on that 30,000, but it certainly gives you a deduction for federal income tax. Um, So that could be a a nice advantage. That's the employee portion. The nice thing about the solo 401k, if you're really profitable, you could actually do an employer portion as well. And that could be like, you know, rule of thumb up to like 20% of the income. So there's a, a number of different factors that Um, impact that number because self-employed people may be able to deduct their health insurance uh, if it's, you know, a private plan, not if it's a group plan, private plan. So if you're on a a spouse's uh, health insurance, that's not a deduction for you. But if you have an individual plan, that could be a deduction. There also could be a qualified business income deduction. There's a a deduction for half the self-employment tax. And of course, um, the deduction for the 401k. So there's some circular calculations involved in all that. It sounds a little scary. If you're working, if you are self-employed, it would probably behoove you to consider working with a a tax professional who could help you navigate all of the various planning options that would be available to you doing all of those. Uh, For example, there are circumstances where I would prefer client to get the qualified business income deduction and maximize that. And if I did the 401k contribution, it kind of limits my qualified business income deduction. So you kind of want to play with the numbers sometimes. The wonderful thing about the 401ks, the solo 401ks, 
is that we can fund those up till the due date of the tax return, including extensions. So for 2023 tax returns, I have up until the due date, including extensions to, you know, make a decision about those 401k contributions. So it's really nice and gives our self-employed people some flexibility in their planning. Because quite often you don't know what your income is until the last day, because you have people who are, you know, quickly trying to get deductions on their you know, corporate returns or, you know, S corp returns and they're paying you and all of a sudden this flood of income comes in and it could really mess up your own planning. So it's really nice for self-employed people to have a little bit of wiggle room in some of the deductions that they can take using the solo 401k. If you have employees, it's a little bit more complicated and there could be other retirement account options that that would be available to you. So that's certainly something you'd want to explore with your tax preparer and or financial advisor. Folks, we're at our second break. If you have questions, the topic tonight is listeners' tax questions. If you have any, the phone number is 610-758-8810. We'll be back in just a moment. WDIY thanks its members and Valley National Financial Advisors, offering a broad spectrum of financial services for more than 25 years, including income tax preparation for individuals, businesses, estates, and trusts. Tax preparation involves more than putting numbers on a return. It requires planning. On the web at valleynationalgroup.com or 610-868-9000. American folk music offers a variegated pattern of performers and styles. I'm Tom Druckenmiller, your host for In the Tradition. Together we'll trace the roots and branches of American folk music from the earliest recordings and performers through today's talented players. In the Tradition, Wednesday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. on WDIY 88.1 FM and WDIY.org. Welcome back to the show. This is your host, Lori Siebert. You're listening to Your Financial Choices right here on WDIY 88.1. Bob and Cindy are in the studio with us waiting for your calls. The topic is listeners' tax questions. If you have any, the phone number is 610-758-8810. You can talk live with us, or if you're not comfortable talking live, just give your question to Cindy and they'll write it down and bring it in to me and I'll do my best to answer. Again, 610-758-8810. I had other questions today from clients asking about withholdings. Um, A change in circumstance. So one um, married couple and one spouse retired and was filing for Social Security now. The other spouse had been collecting Social Security and pensions and had and IRA distributions, uh, required minimum distributions, and has had withholdings on all of those. Well, the income uh, circumstances have changed with the retirement of the one spouse. And if we left everything the same, they would be overwithheld for 2024, meaning their income is coming down, their income tax rate is coming down, but their withholdings were based on, you know, prior income, higher income. So they should adjust the withholdings. So we were talking about what needed to be done. Now, the spouse who just retired is filing for Social Security as well. And technically, they might not have to have any withholdings on their Social Security because the other spouse who was already filed and claiming has more than enough withholdings. Well, they they kind of keep some of their income separate. So 
they kind of wanted to equalize that a little bit. So the newly retired person is going to file for Social Security. We ran through numbers and recommended that the newly retired participant should file for Social Security and ask them to withhold federal taxes. The reason I want to emphasize this tonight is because a lot of people don't understand or realize that you can have withholding on your social security income. I just don't think it's something that is brought to the forefront or either when you're going online to do it or when you're talking to a social security representative. Um, I would say the majority of our clients don't probably have withholding just because it's not something that's on their radar or it's, as I mentioned, not mentioned or offered. So there is a form that you fill out to have withholdings on your social security. It's called a W-4V as in Victor. And it's a very specific withholding form from social security because social security does not give you really, um, it's not based on uh, other income. It's flat. It's either 7%, 10%, 12%, or 22 So you would fill out the W-4V at the time of filing, or if you've already filed and you need to change it, you would fill out a new W-4V and check the box for the amount of withholdings that you want. Um, frankly, I think it's a little confusing how Social Security withholds because I don't believe it's off the gross. I think it's off the net after the... Medicare premiums, but even that, uh, I've always been very confused how to tie into it. But you can use that form W4V to either add withholdings or to change it to another rate. And there's also a box on there to say stop withholding. So you may, you know, at some point, your income has dropped, maybe you've lost a spouse and the pension's gone, and now it's just you and you only have Social Security, uh, you can stop the withholding. Um, so W-4-V for that. This person also had a pension and you can do the same thing with pensions. So my client had previously filed a W-4-P with their prior employer where they have the pension to withhold additional amounts from their pension because, well, you know, their spouse was working, they were in a higher income tax bracket. So you can file a W-4-P to say your filing status and, you know, if you want more money taken out of each check and you can put a dollar amount. So in this circumstance, I had recommended to her, you fill out a new W-4P and just say married filing joint, sign it, and they'll hopefully stop withholding the extra amount. And then I reminded the client to make sure they check because most of these payments, Social Security pension, are automatically deposited, um, you know, auto uh, yeah, auto deposit. So you uh, want to check to see what difference it is in that monthly amount. Does it make sense? Is it logical? Is it what you're expecting? That kind of thing. So you can adjust your withholdings using um, those. If you are employed and you have wages, it's just a W-4. So there's different W-4 forms, W-4V for Social Security, W-4P for pension, and just a W-4 for your employer if, if your circumstances change. They have changed the W-4 uh, format in recent years. Many people, when they start to work, filled out a W-4 
you know, could have been 20 years ago. I don't think I've filled out a W-4 for 24 years. I've been at Valley National 24 years. I don't think I've ever filled out another W-4. But um, the new W-4s, they do continue to have the filing status, but there's some extra boxes you can check to indicate that if there's um, a, a dual earner, so if there's two earners in the family, if you're married and you can say there's two of us working and we have similar income, you can check a box for that. If you have children, you can check boxes for that because there's a child tax credit, you know, if the kids are under a certain age. Uh, maybe when you combine your income with your spouse, you still continue to be underwithheld, even though you've checked all the boxes. Well, w- what I have recommended to some of my clients is don't say you have the children then. I mean, this isn't like a truth you know, true or false thing. It's about determining how much withholdings to have. And if you, um, if when you combine your income, you don't have enough withheld, then maybe you don't want your employer to factor in those child tax credits, because that can, you know, help offset the the um, under withholding you have between the two jobs. All right. So again, you can talk that through with your tax preparer. Um, Frequently, if I have uh, married couples who are under withheld, we try to like review that a little bit more. And in fact, sometimes on the pay stub, if you look at your pay stub, it'll tell you how you're withholding or filing your filing status. It might say married filing joint, it might say single. So that's another good way to kind of double check to see how, uh, what withholding you have set up. had uh, a client ask, uh, we asked for their uh, 1231-23 IRA balances and for their required minimum distribution. They received a 1099-R for their required minimum distribution. And they asked, you know, why are we asking for the statement? Isn't the income reported on the tax document? Yes, it is. But the reason we needed it is because this particular client had what we call after-tax basis in his IRA, meaning in in years prior, maybe when he was working, had a 401k, he put after-tax contributions into a 401k. And then when he rolled it over, um, probably even before we had Roths, he rolled it over and he rolled over tax basis into his IRA rollover. So the IRA has some non-taxable portion. And the way we have to allocate um, the current required minimum distribution taxability is by um, knowing the after-tax portion of the IRA over the total IRA times the distribution. And that's how we determine what what part of the RMD is not taxable. Sounds a little complicated, but that's why we need those those statements. So if, if your preparer is asking for something, there, there could be a reason, and it's a great question, and you should question. You should always understand uh, why someone's asking for particular information um, And I think it was a great question. And it's good now. We all know. Folks, we're at the halfway point. It's listeners' tax questions tonight. If you have any, the phone number is 610-758-8810. We'll be back in just a moment. WDIY thanks its members and Valley National Financial Advisors, offering a broad spectrum of financial services for more than 25 years, including estate planning and tax preparation, especially for Pennsylvania and New Jersey residents subject to state inheritance tax reporting. 
on the web at valleynationalgroup.com or 610-868-9000. Welcome back. The phone number is 610-758-8810. You can talk live on air with me, or if you're not comfortable talking live, just give your question to Cindy and she'll bring it in. Topic tonight, listeners' tax questions. I have had, interestingly, in the last week, two clients have asked about putting on a new roof on their home and do they get a tax credit for it? And I thought, <clears throat> that was interesting. Two questions in the same week. So let me see if I can explain some of this. So the person I put on a new roof, does it qualify for tax credits or a deduction? That was one of the questions. Is it a deduction? Um, so some of the, some new roofs may qualify for a tax credit. And I'm going to uh, mention this because there have been some expanded rules on energy credits. So it's like residential energy credits. There's, they have different names. And, you know, I can't even remember them off the top of my head because what I do whenever I hear about this or whenever I have a client who asks me the question, I'm going to tell you where I go to look. And it's energystar.gov. Energystar.gov. Just go to that website. And it has great information for... Um, any kind of energy credit you might have, whether it's appliances, solar panels, uh, geothermal improvements, water heaters, air conditioners, whatever it might be, energystar.gov, there's a, a, a link to tax credits, and you can click on that, and it's amazing what you can search there. But basically what I found for the, the roofs was um, if it's solar and then certain kind of metal or asphalt qualifications, um, you may qualify for the uh, credit. And it, it was a fairly reasonable uh, amount of a credit, too. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. I think my one client was going to get like a $2,000 credit. So I think it depends on, you know, what it is. But um, you definitely would want to look it up. What I would suggest for anyone, I even for 2024, is if you're planning any kind of uh, energy improvements to your home, whether it's windows, doors, roof, uh, insulation, solar panels, geothermal stuff, whatever it might be. If you're talking to someone about installing or doing this work, ask them if they know if it qualifies for the credit, because there are certain improvements that one might do where the you can get what's called a manufacturer certification. And then you don't have to pay your accountant to go look it up and figure it out for you. I mean, you really should know these things when you're doing it yourself, because it should be part of your tax planning. You know, don't wait till, uh, you know, March to mention it for the prior year, uh, because that really would be important in your tax planning. I've had circumstances where someone, you know, does some energy improvement, and they could qualify, I had someone do um, a Geothos was it solar panels? It was like a 30% credit on what they paid. It was a huge tax credit. Well, they weren't going to have enough income tax to have to use up the credit. So we did like a Roth conversion. So you, you want to make sure you know what these credits are going to look like on your tax return uh, before year end so that you can do some planning. 
So energystart.gov has great information. You can ask any vendor who's doing services for you. Are they aware of the credits? Do they have the manufacturer certification? I, I, I really, in, in so many circumstances, I'm having to look it up for the client. I have to get the model number. I said, what kind of air conditioning system? Is it a split something? And, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. Model numbers. You should have that information available. So those can be reasonable credits. Um, again, it used to be they kind of capped some of those, but they really expanded the energy credits. So please make sure that you understand what those are beforehand. Had another um, client uh, mentioned that they had a K-1. They got a report or a, a update alert that the K-1 for one of their investments was going to be late. Um that, which was very nice to know that the K-1 is going to be late. So they have an investment in some type of partnership and that income may or may not have to be reported. And when I say may or may not, let's unwind that for a minute. So why might I receive a tax document reporting income that may or may not be reported? Lori, what are you talking about? Well, my question to the client was, this K-1 that you've received the notice that it's going to be late is the investment held in an IRA or is it held in an individual or joint kind of brokerage account? If it's held in an IRA, it doesn't matter. Typically, the only thing you'd have to watch out for is something called unrelated business income. But assuming that doesn't apply, if you hold an investment in an IRA that issues a K-1 you don't typically have to worry about that. Um, probably 99.9 times, 9% of the time. You don't have to worry about it. So even though you got the alert, don't let your tax, um, you know, gathering your tax information hold you up because of that. Now, if it is in an investment account, then yes, it may get held up. And it would be really important for your preparer to know that and be aware of that. So you, you want to... Um, let your preparer know because you might have to go on extension regardless if that K-1 isn't going to be issued after April 15th. And why would that happen? So many times people will say, oh, don't they have to issue tax documents by January 31st? Well, no, not really. Uh, some documents have to be issued by January 31st, things like W-2s, certain bank interests like 1099 INTs. Some of the brokerage firms have um, received extensions for, for reporting certain dividend income because they have, you know, to reconcile capital gain distributions and return of principal and that kind of thing. Um, so there's some extensions on those. But a K-1 is from typically a partnership, an S-corp, or um, an estate or trust, and they can file for extensions. So if your partnership, whose return is due March 15th, files for an extension, you may not get that K-1 till April, May, June, whenever they end up filing by their extension due date. Same thing with estates and trust and S-corps. Okay, so you do need to know when your K-1 is going to come. And if it's going to be late, let your preparer know so they can file for an extension because they're very busy to begin with. Now, when you file with an, for an extension, I've mentioned this on prior shows, it doesn't mean it's an extension of time to pay. It's only an extension of time to file. So you definitely still want to make sure that if you generally owe, that you um, calculate that as part of your extension and make a payment on account with the IRS. 
if you generally always get a refund, then maybe you're safe just to file for the extension and you, you may be able to just file for the extension yourself. Um, individuals file, I think it's a 4868. Um, I, I realize as I get older, um, I, I let the software do all this stuff. So I, 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 I don't remember all the form numbers anymore, but I think it's a 4868 for uh, extensions. Uh, so just uh, that that's easier. That's very easy to do. And typically the states piggyback off the federal extension. So it's not that complicated. But if you think you're going to owe state, then you also should uh, send in a payment. And quite often there would be an extension form to um, marry to your payment that you're making to make sure it gets applied to the proper tax year. Um, I had someone, I think, who wrote on the bottom of the check, they, they combined... Um, a payment of tax and an estimate in the same check. And that did not go over well. That did not go over well with the IRS. It caused a lot of problems. They didn't indicate on the memo line what it was for, just kind of submitted the check. And, and basically, I think the IRS didn't know what to do with it. And it kind of complicated things for some period of time. So be very clear on what you're paying and make sure you're separating out you know, an extension payment versus like an estimated tax payment, because the extension could be done April 15th, and your first estimate for the new year would also be April 15th. Separate payments, separate submissions, separate vouchers with those. Okay, so be careful. I'm going to mention the phone number again, 610-758-8810. Uh, we still have five more minutes before the next break and another uh, 20 minutes to the end of the show. Um, I thought this was important to mention as well, because this came up, um, well, it hasn't come up, but I think it's important to mention is that um, if you are investing in real estate, in unimproved land, vacant land um, as an investment, and you file your tax return, and typically so many people are taking the standard deduction now that they're not taking, they're not itemizing, they're not taking a deduction for real estate taxes. I don't want those people to miss out on an election that they can make. It's under, um, I think IRS code 266. So it's an election under section 266. And it's an election you can do year by year. So in the years where you're not itemizing and getting a deduction for that vacant land, um, or unimproved land, you can elect to capitalize the real estate taxes. So let's pretend you buy 30 acres in your hometown and you've held it for, you're holding it for investment and the real estate taxes on your 30 acres are $3,000 and you paid, you know, $20,000 for the land so long ago. Well, if you paid $20,000 and, you know, you're thinking about selling it at some point, the value's, you know, continuing to appreciate, you're not getting a benefit from that $3,000 real estate tax um, that you've paid in my story. You can elect under 266 to capitalize that and add those $3,000 of real estate taxes to your cost basis. So if you paid $20,000, you add $3,000, now it's $23,000. And let's say you do that for another nine years, that would be $3,000 a year from 10 years, that's $30,000. That's adds to the 20000 you paid for it. Now I have a cost basis of $50,000. If I sell it for three hundred, dollars you know, I have a $250,000 gain that I otherwise would have had a $280,000 gain. Okay? 
So you can capitalize real estate taxes. It's an election you have to make year by year with your tax return. It's basically, I think, a statement that you would attach to your return to elect to capitalize the real estate taxes that you are not otherwise deducting um, because you're not itemizing in my little story here. So that's something to be aware of. Um, I mentioned on LinkedIn today, you know, that it was listeners' tax questions tonight. And my favorite questions are the ones that you don't know to ask. Um, And that is one of them. That is something that a lot of people don't know about. And it could make a big difference over time, especially if you're holding uh, vacant land for um, an extended period of time. Um, People are always asking, what about medical expenses, Lori? Should I add up my medical expenses? Well, again, back with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, when they raised the standard deduction to so high, uh, many people, and and they capped the um, tax deduction to $10,000, so many people are not itemizing anymore. They're taking a standard deduction. So when does it make sense to keep track of your medical? It would only make sense to keep track of your medical, and this is doesn't account you know, health insurance through your employer, you're already getting a deduction for that on your uh, W-2. So you can't count that employer provided health care because you're getting a deduction. It's not included in income already. Um, So it would only make sense if combined your medical expenses exceed seven and a half percent of your adjusted gross income. So if your adjusted gross income is a hundred thousand dollars, seven and a half percent is seventy five hundred dollars. How many of us have out of pocket medical expenses of seventy five hundred dollars? Not a lot of us. Typically where um and, and that's just the start of it. So let's pretend our medical expenses are ten thousand. That means I would get to deduct twenty five hundred dollars of my medical. Remember, the taxes are capped at 10. So now I'm at 10,000 plus 2,500. That's 12,500. Well, if my standard deduction, you know, married filing joint, it's, it's $27,700. I'm so far away from that. How much is my mortgage interest and my charitable contributions? If, you're, if you have a big mortgage, you know, maybe. Um, but quite often what I see is the medical deductions really are there for the people who have assisted living, nursing care, um, nurse, you know, qualified nursing expenses. That's where I really see the magnitude of, of the medical expenses making a difference. And in that case, then we're looking to say, you know, what kind of income does someone have? Are they going to benefit from the full deduction? Do we need to do IRA conversions and that kind of thing? Folks, we're at the last break. If you have questions, it is your topic tonight. Listener's tax questions, 610-758-8810. We'll be back in just a moment. WDIY thanks its members and Valley National Financial Advisors, offering a broad spectrum of financial services, including portfolio management, tax return preparation, and financial planning for the accumulation years, retirement years, and estate distribution. On the web at valleynationalgroup.com or 610-868-9000. Did you know your phone is a radio? You can tune into WDIY anywhere on the go with WDIY's phone app. Download for free from the Apple or Google Store and your phone will become your trusted radio. The easy-to-use app lets you listen to WDIY on your phone live and access your favorite music shows on demand. Download and share the WDIY app with your friends and family and introduce them to many choices, real voices. 
Welcome back to the show. This is your host, Lori Siebert. You're listening to Your Financial Choices. Um, if not tonight, you find that you have a question, uh, they can be submitted through yourfinancialchoices.com. And uh, I answer those and I don't pester you. I don't take your information. I don't try to get it. So, you know, I just do the best I can to help help people go along their way. Um, we are doing listeners tax questions tonight. Next week, I am having an attorney, Peter um, Iorio from Fitzpatrick Lenson Buba on. We're going to talk about avoiding estate planning mistakes. I'm very excited about that show. So um, he is fantastic. And I look forward to, um, you know, hearing what he has to say about avoiding um, estate planning uh, pitfalls. Uh, tonight, finishing up talking about uh, tax questions. Uh I want to remind everyone that if you have not yet prepared your return, what your options are. One, you could, you know, handwrite your tax return, which, you know, can get more complicated as we get older and we start collecting Social Security or have qualified dividends or capital gains because there's all kinds of interrelated tax rates and tax calculations and income reporting on that. So you can do it, but it is a little bit more complicated. There's worksheets that you have to complete. You can also um, contact perhaps free tax services within your community. Um, I know that AARP uh, offers uh, uh, tax preparation services in many areas around the country. You can just go on their website at AARP, I believe AARP.org, and um, search for uh, tax preparation sites by entering your zip code and it'll show you where some locations are and they offer various ways to provide that information and to prepare the return. You can either maybe do a drop off or you can sit with someone um, and they could uh, take the information or scan it. So I think there are a number of different ways that they do it, but that could be available to you as well as going on irs.gov, irs.gov. And there are free um, e-file programs available there depending on your income. And when I go on irs.gov, you uh, look for links. It pops up on that first page to say file free. And when you click on it, it takes you to their tax partners. And there's like five different ones. And they have varying uh, income levels of people that they'll help with the free tax service. And uh, I think $79,000 is the highest income. That's page one $79,000 of income. Some are lower. Some offer state filing as well. So you just would have to click through to see what might apply to, for you. And if you don't qualify under any of those programs, there's also a link to fillable forms that you can also e-file on your own. They're just not guided um, preparation, meaning you kind of have to know like what forms you have and where they get reported. I've not done it, so I don't know. But if you're... Um, fairly familiar with your own tax filing. It might be easier if you're someone who has just some very um, simple tax forms like, you know, 1099 INT or a W-2 or, you know, Social Security. So um, if anyone does use that service and you, and it went well for you, I would love to hear about that. You can certainly uh, let me know through yourfinancialchoices.com. I would love to get um, some input to that. Um, some cautions I also want to give people is remember when you have year to year changes. Um, I had a tax return I worked on today. The person had child care in 2020. 
two. And then in 2023, mid-year, she said, you know, I'm not going to have child care anymore and I'll be able to, you know, start putting money into a 529. Well, I'm doing the return and I realized, wait, did she have child care at the beginning of 2023? It was so long ago that you may not remember what you had. So I want to caution people on that. Just remember to think, you know, you got to remember what tax year you're in. I get very confused this time of year because I'm looking at 2022 information. I'm preparing 2023 and I'm projecting 2024. So I'm, I'm never sure what tax year I'm in. So just be aware of year to year changes. Same thing would apply. And I'm not seeing this as much anymore because of high mortgage interest rates. But at the time when people were doing um, uh, refinancing, if you change your mortgage provider, sometimes you might miss out on one of the mortgage, the 1098s that they issue for your mortgage interest. So you don't want to miss out on that if you're someone who thinks that you're going to itemize deductions. So if you're a fairly newer homeowner, uh, maybe your mortgage was sold from you know one to the other, make sure that you have accounted for all of your mortgage interest. I think that is something that people miss. So uh, childcare, new mortgage provider, and um, or people who chase around interest rates at different banks. And, you know, you go to ABC Bank in 2022 and you go to XYZ Bank in 2023 and you go to GHI Bank in, you know, in part of 2023 as well. It's it's a little bit harder to kind of trace those tax documents to make sure that you're, um, you know, collecting all of the, the appropriate information. You might forget where you had bank interest. So uh, kind of follow that from year to year. I will also mention as a as a little asterisk to that is if you have not ever checked um, for unclaimed property for yourself and maybe even your loved ones, maybe parents who've passed away or aunts or uncles or someone like that, siblings, um, there are state websites, government state websites that um, re might reflect or report unclaimed property. It used to be, I think, unclaimed property got reported every five years. I think it's now like three years. And you should never, ever pay someone to find unclaimed property. It's all reported with the state. You can go onto the state website, search for your name, verify if that is your information. If you, yes, I remember, my gosh, I forgot I had that, you know, that stock and I had dividend checks I never cashed. I had a, you know, medical insurance, uh, you know, premium refunded or a hospital bill refund. When, when a, a vendor or, you know, provider has income on your behalf and they can't contact you if they're holding the funds they have to turn it over to the state it's called escheatment they have to turn it over to the state within a certain period of time and then you can claim it at the state site so i mean i myself have even found things that i didn't even know i had um accredited at a store i was surprised um you know sometimes uh, there will be a settlement for some unknown reason and you don't realize you know you had it and you didn't cash the check because you threw it away thinking it was just junk mail and uh, it gets turned over to the state so you just go in uh, you know I will search PA unclaimed property you go to the PA website you put in your last name do a 
you know, a security check and then see if type in your name, see if anything comes up and then you can just click a link to claim and the information as to what you have to provide to claim that unclaimed property uh, should be provided on that form. Sometimes you just have to provide like a driver's license and social security number. Sometimes you have to get it notarized. It all depends on the amount. And uh, on Pennsylvania, they tell you if it's under $100 or over $100. A couple other reminders I want to make sure that people uh, know about when you're filing your 2023 tax return. You heard me mention earlier that if you are self-employed and your profit was much more than you thought, if you didn't already have a retirement plan, you could still set up one, a solo 401k, and make a contribution to it up until the due date or extension due date. And that was a great way to do some extra planning. There are some other um, reminders I wanted to say related to um, planning that you can make for the 2023 tax year still. And that is uh, if you have a high deductible health plan and you're eligible for a health savings account, there's some planning opportunities available for that and or IRAs or Roth IRAs. <clears throat> I'm losing my voice because I've been talking nonstop. Um, the health savings account, if again, if you're eligible, um, you may have a single plan, like a self-only plan, or you may have a family plan. The single plan is 3850 That is a deduction that you can take. If you are making contributions to a health savings account through your employer, which is the optimal, optimal, optimal way to do a health savings account, if you're employed, have a high deductible health plan and have a health savings account, the optimal tax savings are doing it through payroll deduction because you save federal tax, state tax, social security tax, Medicare tax, state, local. I mean, it's just incredible great tax saving um, opportunity. If you're single, it's $38.50. If you're 55 or over, you can do an extra $1,000. So that's a deduction of $4,850. If you're doing it through payroll deduction and you did the max, you got it. You already got the benefit. There's nothing else to do. What I often see, and that could also include the employer portion, by the way, if the employer does a match, that is included in that dollar amount. What I often see is someone might say, oh, $100 a month, and they might only do $1,200. Well, if at tax time, I look at your W-2, it tells me how much you put into the health savings account. If I see that you didn't max it and you have adequate funds and adequate emergency reserves and you're looking to, you know, do something with your extra cash flow, you can still fund the health savings account up until April 15th. At that time, then you can get the deduction for federal and you can get the deduction for state, you kind of lose out on the deduction for the um, Social Security and Medicare uh, if you're doing it on your own, but it's a great opportunity. And when you talk about a family plan, it's even a greater opportunity because the family deductible um, deduction amount is 7750 And again, if the participant is 55 or over, they can do another $1,000. That's an $8,750 um, deduction, basically. You're not paying income tax on that. If you didn't do it through your employer and you look at your W-2 and you look at the HSA deduction and it didn't max out, then you should consider whether or not you have enough money to uh, fund it up until April 15th 
to get that deduction. So that is another planning opportunity. It's it's really big. And you might ask your um, tax preparer or put it in your own software. If you did do the extra amount, how much more income tax savings do you have? Because you may be able to get, you know, increase your refund or reduce the amount of taxes you owe. And that could help you know, that could be the difference in, in some of that extra funding you would have to do. Uh, we also have until April 15th to fund IRAs, individual retirement accounts, if we qualify. And there are certain qualifications to fund uh, an IRA. If you're a married filing joint, make under $116,000, you can put for 2023 $6,500 into an IRA, get a deduction, extra $1,000 if you're uh, 50 or over. Uh, that's for the traditional IRA. If you uh, one uh, part one uh, taxpayer, if you're married, filing joint, is a participant in a retirement plan, and um, the other is not, that the income is a little bit higher. So the phase out applies if the taxpayer is covered by an employer plan for married, filing joint. Phase out range for non covered spouse is two hundred eighteen thousand dollars. So there are some limits on who can fund an IRA, but that's the deduction. And the income, of course, is much higher for Roth IRA contributions. You're not getting a tax deduction today, but you're investing for the you know the future tax free. It's really great. You can always get back your original contributions if if needed, and the, the same dollar amounts for Roth, but much higher AGI, $218,000 or lower for married filing joint, $138,000 for single or head of household. And I love Roth IRAs if you're eligible for them. Um, there's also backdoor Roths, but I don't have time to talk about those tonight. Well, thank you, listeners. Uh, thank you, Cindy and Bob, for being here tonight. Thank you, Peter, for being here. Um, next week, as I mentioned, I'm going to have attorney Peter Iorio from Fitzpatrick, Lentz, and Booba, and we're going to discuss avoiding estate planning mistakes. I'm very excited to have him. It's going to be a great show. Coming up next, we have Tom Druckenmiller with In the Tradition Folk Music. Remember, be proactive, not reactive. Make the best of your financial choices and have a great week. 